Blog Talk Radio. and Sportsbeat Radio, this is Sportsbeat, a provocative, insightful, informative, and educational show that we hope will educate the sports listener to the specific of sport. With interviews, analysis, and a comprehensive look at the topics we feel will be appealing to the sports listener, and with that said, we're not just your average call-in, same subject, same question over and over sports radio, we like to think of ourselves as informative and educational radio. So why not sit back and for the next 30 minutes or so, we hope you'll find the program informative, educational, and above all, enjoyable. And with that said and done, this is Sports Beat, and we're coming at you live, and I'm your host, John Spool. So everybody, welcome to this 27th day of April, 2023. Thanks so much for joining us on yet another segment of Sports Beat Radio Talking Sports. And in case you've had enough of the last four months of the news of Aaron Rodgers, I mean, that reverberates through our heads. Uh, we'd like to change the subject and talk about our show, which is called The AFL's Greatest Coaches. We're going to talk about the American Football League, uh, not the AFL of rugby and all those, but the American Football League, and uh, those of you who have heard the show before have heard me speak about that, uh, the glorious 10 years of the league. But before we get to that, we have a segment uh, on Sportsbeat that we like to address, and that is uh, Ask Sportsbeat is what it's called, and we have uh, questions from uh, fans around the world, really, that uh, we like to answer. They ask us uh, the questions, and one of them uh, Uh, Matt from Tyler, Texas, he asked this question. He said, how do uh, teams uh, get the companies to provide uniforms for the teams? And so I think I understand what you're saying, Matt. Uh, Basically what happens is uh, the leagues, not the teams, but the leagues uh, put out a bid to the major manufacturers, the Nike, you know, Reebok, Majestic, uh, back in the 70s uh, and late 60s and maybe into the 80s, Sand Knit was another one that made NBA jerseys and also uh, MLB jerseys. And so what they do is they bid, uh, and then the, uh, the best bid that they get will get the license from that uh, particular uh, venue, whether it be hockey, baseball, basketball, or football. And so uh, the license agreement, once it's agreed upon, the license is good for five years. And this year, the last couple of years, Nike has had the uh, venue for the uh, MLB and NBA. And you notice that Nike swoosh, that little check mark, which is on the chests of uh, most of the uh, Major League Baseball teams, and then on the stirrup part of the jersey on the NBA, it's on there. Now, the Yankees were not thrilled about having that on. They wanted it on the sleeve, but in accordance with their license and the agreement with uh, Nike that they had to post it on their chest like the other uh, teams did. The Yankees felt that it took away from their uniform, but you really don't have much to say. The league decides, and uh, it's much like pharmaceuticals. 
uh, a pharmaceutical will be developed. Uh, the company has it for X number of years before the license runs out and it becomes generic and other companies can prosper on it. That way, uh, it's not a monopoly. And so once the Reebok uh, license is over, uh, the next uh, company will get a chance. Uh, Nike will not get another chance after they've had their five-year run. And uh, what basically happens is Nike has, the companies have uh, designers. They'll reach out to the teams and see if they would like to have uh, a new uniform design or modification. Or in the Yankees' case, the Yankees said, no, thanks, we'll keep what we have. And so that's how you get uh, a lot of uniform changes. Some teams will go all out. Other teams have, you know, a moderation of uh, uniform, and then others uh, decide that their uniforms are fine and they don't need them. So that's how... Uh, it's done uh, basically by bid. You know, it's the way you would bid in a contract uh, for a contractor. You know, if you need your roof done, you set out a bid to six or seven companies and all, you know, legitimate companies, hopefully, and then, uh, you know, you'll take the lowest bidder or the best bidder, whatever that is. So that kind of answers it. So thanks for those questions. Any uh, of you that have questions, you might want to submit them to Sports Beat Radio, and we'll answer them the best we can. Some of them have been fairly interesting. So our show today is about the AFL's greatest coaches. And, you know, one of the things I've talked about it many times is um, I have no shame in being part of the American Football League in its early days. Now, I started to watch football uh, probably around 1963, 64, somewhere in there. I was 9 or 10 years old. Uh, I got into it probably a little later because my father really wasn't uh, adept at watching sports that much, and so that's how most of us get into it at early ages. We see our fathers watching games, and we kind of get into it. Or the father teaches us, or in some cases the mother. But I remember you know, watching the NFL and, you know, flipping the channel. We only had three networks then, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And uh, CBS and NBC had the NFL and the AFL. Uh, the AFL in the early days was on ABC. And so this league uh, was just so colorful. You know, the uniforms were cool, the chargers with the, you know, the uh, lightning bolts and the, the two-point conversion and the names on the back. And, you know, the NFL, you know, was just, okay and i felt guilty about watching the afl because none of my friends did and none of the, my coaches did and so uh i'm proud to have watched it because some of the uh, players and especially the coaches that we're going to talk about uh became synonymous with football and the great john madden who probably was the most accomplished of all of the AFL coaches, always said in his broadcast in CBS and then with Fox when he was with Pat Summerall, he said it regularly, and that was he always acknowledged Al Davis for giving him the opportunity to coach. Because if it wasn't for Al Davis, uh, John Madden said, I probably would not have been able to coach. Uh, John Madden was a uh, football player at a uh, very minor school in California. He uh, was part of the Philadelphia Eagles. He was injured and then really never was able to play. And uh, he became like a linebacker coach uh, and then slowly, of course, became uh, what we all know as uh, the winningest coach. I believe he is the winningest coach in Raider history, having won in 76 against the Washington Redskins. And we all remember him kind of like that Vince Lombardi uh, hoisting then Jerry Kramer had him on his shoulders where uh, Lombardi goes out in Super Bowl II against the 
Oakland Raiders. And uh, we remember, uh, you know, very succinctly that uh, moment when John Madden was carried out. And then, of course, he became uh, one of the most uh, animated and probably great, well-known, uh, most beloved uh, color commentators. He really taught us football, and he was really in it. John Madden lived for football, and he became a great coach. Another great coach was the great Sid Gilman. You know, Sid Gilman, uh, the father of the modern offense with the San Diego Chargers. Uh, Sid Gilman uh, having a difficult time getting into coaching, mainly because of his Jewish persuasion. Um, there was a lot of prejudice in those days, and there certainly still is amongst uh, the owners of uh, franchises. Maybe not as bad as it once was, but he had difficulty because of his faith. And once he got in, he basically got in because of Baron Hilton, who owned uh, the uh, Los Angeles Chargers. They were first in Los Angeles before they went to San Diego. And uh, he became uh, synonymous with uh, the uh, modern offense. You know, he had a great team in the San Diego Chargers. John Hadle, who many feel should be uh, in the Hall of Fame, I, I think he's borderline mainly, but, you know, he had two great, great receivers, the great Lance Allworth, who was uh, one of the great receivers of all time, the first AFL player to uh, be enshrined in the Hall of Fame back in, I believe, 78 it was. And then you had another receiver on the other slot end, which was Gary Garrison. And Lance Allworth had told me in interviews that he felt that Gary Garrison was as good as him. But he never really got the accolades because Allworth was really the flashy star. Hadel went to Allworth more than he went to Garrison. And then you had Jock McKinnon, who was about 6'6". He was the prototype of what a tight end would be mostly blocking. They had, you know, Russ Washington on the line and um, Ron Mix, who was one of the great tackles of all time. Ron Mix played 12 years and never had a holding penalty, which is unbelievable. It's unbelievable when you think of that stat. And yet uh, this uh, team, uh, not so much on the defensive side, but on the offensive side, became, you know, synonymous. And that 63 team of the San Diego Chargers when uh, Sid Gilman was upset in the 62 season because they, uh, he felt that they didn't play up to their capabilities. He sends them out to, uh, to eastern uh, California. And those of you who haven't been to California, you know, you have the glitzy part of California. It's a beautiful state, regardless of its condition now with all of the uh, wokeism that's there. But, uh, you know, along the coast, the glitziness of L.A. and the beauty of San Francisco and San Diego. But as you go in uh, eastern-wise, California, some some of it looks like Mars. I mean, it's desert. Uh, it's like rolling hills. That's where they filmed, you know, the Riflemen uh, way back with Chuck Connors back in the 60s and some of the Westerns. And if you were to be blindfolded and, and uh, open the, the blindfold, you wouldn't realize that you were in California. And so this place, Rough Acres, that he took them to, uh, was basically secluded in the desert. There was rattlesnakes. They had to get off the field. Uh, they had to... Uh, put sawdust on the field uh, because there wasn't much grass. They had to get uh, cover gopher holes and everything else. And what he wanted to do is uh, make them think football constantly, football. And uh, the Chargers became uh, a team uh, to reckon with. They won uh, the 63 championship uh, and uh, annihilated their opponent. And then 
it was said, and I think it is documented, that uh, Sid Gilman sent a notice to George Hallis, the NFL's winner uh, in 63, the, the Bears had won in that year, uh, to play a game, kind of like a Super Bowl, and, and basically Hallis threw away the uh, invitation. Now, whether he knew that the Chargers could beat him, uh, there was a lot of speculation then, of course, that uh, uh, maybe the AFL wasn't as bad as it was, even though the NFL called it a Mickey Mouse league. You know, we soon found out, really only in its uh, eighth or ninth year of existence, that the New York Jets would become uh, a juggernaut with Joe Namath and, and really Emerson Boozer and Matt Snell's running over 100 yards in that game. Uh, beating a very good Colts team. The Colts were, were favored by 16 points in that game. And, and uh, you know, you never hear about another great coach, Weeb Eubank. Weeb Eubank weaved a masterpiece in that Super Bowl. You know, it wasn't Namath's arm. It wasn't Namath to Sauer, and it wasn't Namath to Maynard. It was uh, short passes. And, of course, uh, the great running and blocking of Emerson Boozer and Matt Snell, who was the fullback kind of a position that's lost today, as is the running back position because it's all about passing today. But this was a team uh, that had uh, the blueprint from a great coach and a Hall of Famer, uh, as is John Madden, and that was Wee Bubank. And Wee Bubank was a coach who uh, had the fortune of coaching in both leagues. He coached the uh, Baltimore Colts. And he coached the New York Jets. He wasn't the first coach of the Jets. That was, uh, I believe, Sammy Baugh, the great uh, slinging Sammy Baugh, uh, who set all kinds of passing records and revolutionized the sport with his passing back in the 30s, was the first coach. They were called the Titans then. And then, of course, uh, uh, they played at the polo grounds, and uh, they were you know, not very good. They almost went under. They couldn't afford uh, the franchise. But uh, everything worked out as Sonny Werblin would buy the team in 63 and then sign Namath and everything would uh, go from belly up to roses. But uh, we Bubank, a great coach, a Hall of Famer, another person that probably would have been able to still coach at a, a NFL level because he was part of the NFL. And yet, uh, one of the many coaches in the AFL that uh, propelled to greatness and uh, did it really quietly. A lot of people, you know, always gave Namath the credit, but it was really uh, the great coaching and stalwartism of, uh, of this great uh, football coach, Wee Bubank. And then another one that I certainly admired growing up, um, a guy who used to be a line coach at uh, Purdue, worked his way up in the uh, – once the league started in 1960 – uh, he became uh, known to Lamar Hunt, who was the founder of the AFL and also uh, the owner of the Dallas Texans, who a few years later would become the Kansas City Chiefs. And that was the great Hank Stram. Um, you know, Hank Stram, on, you know, the very dapper Hank Stram, you know, always with the jacket on and the little Kansas City arrowhead uh, logo on his lapel, on his jacket, and uh, always known for rolling up the program. Uh, or the plays that uh, he would uh, shoot in uh, to his uh, – he was one of the first to use messenger guards. Uh, this was a guy who was innovative like no other NFL coach. This was the guy who had the moving pocket. Uh, he put huge linemen up on the offensive line so that they could kind of hide behind – the running backs could hide behind these guys. And they had people like Mike Garrett, who was uh, out of USC, who was a Heisman Trophy winner. 
they had Burt Cohn, not great names, but these guys, Johnny Robinson, who was a sensational safety. And then, of course, you know, you had this uh, journeyman quarterback who was just about finished uh, in his career, going from Pittsburgh, going from Cleveland. But uh, Hank Stram remembered him very well at Purdue, and that's where he played, and that was Len Dawson. And Len Dawson led the Chiefs. Uh, to two Super Bowls, the first one in 67, where they were beaten uh, by the Packers 35-10. to 10. And I had the privilege, of course, of being there in one of the shows. Uh, I related that to you a few uh, weeks ago. And then, of course, in Super Bowl four, which was the last Super Bowl before the merger of the NFL and the AFL, 1970, Tulane Stadium against uh, Joe Cap and uh, Bud Grant and the Minnesota Vikings, another heavily favored team. And Hank Stram's Chiefs took them apart. It was, a, it was no contest. And then, of course, you had the likes of Curly Colt, and then you had the likes of Fred Arbanis, who uh, actually had uh, vision only in one eye. He was mugged in Kansas City at one point, lost uh, vision in his eye because of the mugging, and still was a very quality uh, tight end. And then, of course, you had the great Otis Taylor, who uh, you know passed from us a few months ago, uh, catching uh, quite a few of those uh passes in that Super Bowl four against the uh, Minnesota Vikings. And then, of course, you had, uh, you know, the uh, 64 power toss trap, the famous uh, line that uh, uh, Hank Stram was known for as he was wired for sound in Super Bowl four. I think he was one of the first coaches that they did that to. But the legacy of Hank Stram, uh, another coach of the AFL that probably wouldn't have had a chance in the NFL, ends up in the Hall of Fame. And that Chiefs team, even though they didn't win a lot of championships, they did win 62. Uh, they beat the Oilers, who had won the first two years with George Blanda, uh, the great quarterback of the uh, Oilers. But uh, they won the 62 uh, as the Dallas Texans at Jefferson Stadium down in Houston. And then they uh, lost Super Bowl one in 67, and then they won the Super Bowl. Of course, uh, since then, they've won uh, several Super Bowls. Uh, but Hank Stram is always remembered. Uh, later on, he became a broadcaster for CBS Radio. And uh, one of the legendary coaches, Hank Stram, another AFL product. And then, you know, you look at uh, the early days, and you had uh, coaches like Wally Lem who certainly probably wasn't in the caliber of Hank Stram and John Madden. He was uh, one of the first coaches of the Houston Oilers, who was a charter member of the AFL, and they uh, handily won the first two years, 60 and 61, with George Blanda, another quarterback who was kind of finished uh, with the Bears. They kind of let him go, and he became, uh, for those of us who remember, he became synonymous with the AFL. I mean, this was a guy who was playing well into his 40s and still kicking 50-yard field goals for the Oakland Raiders. And many times, uh, because Daryl LaMonica, the Mad Bomber, number three for the uh, Raiders, uh, was injury prone. He was out a lot. He got injured a lot, and Blanda would come off the bench and, and bring his Raiders um, you know, to fruition. They would win games because of, uh, of Blanda. And, uh, you know, Wally Lem, another coach who was able to uh, win two championships with the Oilers in the early days of the AFL. He's not a Hall of Famer, but another person who wouldn't have been able to get there uh, if it wasn't for the AFL. And then, of course, you had Lou Saban, who was one of the early coaches of the Buffalo Bills. And he's another one that wouldn't have had the opportunity to get to uh, coaching at a head coaching level if it wasn't for the AFL. And so the AFL turned out 
not just great players who uh, some of them were signed by other teams. I believe Lance Allworth was signed by the 49ers. Uh, the great Gail Sayers, who uh, played his career with the Bears, was signed by the Chiefs in 65, but decided to play for the Bears. Can you imagine Gail Sayers as a Chief in the same backfield with Mike Garrett? Uh, it would have been phenomenal. Maybe the Chiefs would have, that could have been the difference in the first Super Bowl. Who knows? But nonetheless... When you look at the history of this league, which only lasted 10 years, 1960, in the summer of 59, Lamar Hunt uh, put the teams together, friends of his like Bud Adams and, and um, you know, some of the other, uh, Baron Hilton, who owned all the Hilton hotels, people that he knew, uh, he asked to, if they would be interested in uh, formulating a team. Matter of fact, there's an interesting side story. Um, Bud Adams, who was a very close friend of Lamar Hunt, uh, chose uh, Lamar Hunt wanted Columbia Blue for the uh, Dallas Texans, who would become the Chiefs. And uh, the story is, is that Bud Adams actually beat him out for for the color, and the Oilers ended up with Columbia Blue, and the Chiefs got red. But Lamar Hunt wanted it the other way around. Isn't it ironic? Lamar Hunt was the founder of the league, and yet he couldn't get the color he wanted. And so, yeah, I guess it's kind of hard to believe, you know, hard to fathom the Chiefs wearing blue since they've always had red. And this is a team that's basically had the same uniforms since uh, 1960. You know, some some minor modifications, uh, but for the most part, you know, the same the same uniform. And so, you know, the uniforms were part of it. The excitement of the open offense, you know, as the NFL was kind of drab and we knew what they were going to do, third down and a few yards, you knew they were going to, what they were going to do. But the two-point play made it different. The football was different. They used the, um, I believe it was the J-16 Spalding, where the uh, NFL used the Duke, and that was always synonymous with the NFL. Uh, but uh, another great coach, of course, who was like Wee Bubank and, and, and went uh, both ways in both leagues and won a championship was uh, the great Don Shula. And Don Shula, of course, uh, comes into Miami. Now, Don Shula, already known in the NFL, probably would have been able to coach anyway, anywhere he wanted because of his, his fame with Baltimore. Uh, but he comes into Miami uh, he was not the first coach there. Uh, uh, they came into the league in 1966. I always remember Miami uh, when they when they were on. The highlight of it was they had this huge tank uh, behind the um, goalpost that whenever the Dolphins or somebody would kick a field goal, it normally landed in the tank and Flipper was in there, or at least the Dolphin named Flipper. I don't know if it was actually Flipper from the, from the TV series back in the 60s. And he would bounce the ball on his nose and everything and then – kind of bounce it out of the pool. Of course, now with uh, the cruelty to animal uh, situation, they no longer have that. But I remember that early. Uh, those kinds of things were part of the AFL that the NFL didn't have. But Shula, of course, you know, the early 70s, having uh, the uh, premier aspect of, of being an undefeated team in 1972, 17-0, I don't know that we'll see a team that will be able to do that in football. Uh, you know, records are made to be broken, but that that record has stood for quite a while, 1972. And each year, the surviving members of the Dolphins, Larry Zonka and Bob Greasy and so forth, get together and kind of have a toast uh, celebrating that uh, no one 
uh, has been able to duplicate that record. Now, we do remember the Giants had beaten the Patriots, who were undefeated until that Super Bowl. And uh, that was a close one for the for the Dolphins. But here, you know, again, Larry Zonka, Jim Kick out of the University of Wyoming became uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. That's what they used to call them. And you had a guy like Shula who got the uh, Miami Dolphins into championships and Super Bowls. Another AFL product, you know, and the list goes on. Um, this was a league of dominance. This was a league of structure. It was well put together. They had their problems early. You know, uh, the Oakland Raiders uh, were actually at one point considering, I had mentioned this before, they were going to be called the Oakland Seniors, and then they changed it to Raiders. They weren't officially seniors, but that was the name that they were going to give them, uh, probably because of the major Hispanic community out in the Oakland area. But nonetheless, uh, this was a team that was on the ropes. They were financially burdened. They were almost bankrupt. And um, Wilson, uh, Mr. Wilson up there in Buffalo, uh, he was the uh, guy who gave a uh, check to the Raiders for about $450,000 to keep them afloat. That's the kind of ownerships that they had in those days. They were not a loose confederation of people. They were, were men who were uh, desiring to see this league uh, at all costs not fail. While the NFL you know, threw mud at them and called them Mickey Mouse and it'll never succeed. And the real uh, shot in the arm was when uh, ABC early uh, took, uh, I believe, gave them two and a half million dollars, which at that time was a lot of money, and uh, to televise the games, and that infused a lot of money into the league, and let them. Uh, and there were still teams like the Raiders and the and the Titans, who became the Jets, who were, you know, on the brink of uh, possible bankruptcy, but that did not happen. And so uh, the charter members of the AFL still remain. You know, the East had the Boston Patriots, who are now the New England Patriots. They had the New York Titans, who are now the Jets. You had the Buffalo Bills. Um, and, um, uh, you know, Miami would come in later. Uh, Cincinnati would come in later. Uh, the brainchild of uh, another great coach, uh, Paul Brown, who basically uh, that was his team. The Cleveland Browns were named after him. This was a guy who uh, took the Cleveland Browns to many championships, not so much in the NFL, but in the old AAFL, which was a competitor American Football League uh, in the 40s. And so the uh, situation is when you look at the coaching, when you look at the players, when you look at the great games, you know, the Heidi game, the long Christmas game, uh, one of the uh, great games on Christmas Day, the last game to be played at uh, Memorial Stadium in Kansas City between the Chiefs and the Miami Dolphins, and it was a, a battle up and down. Ed Podolak having a sensational game, over 300-plus yards of all-purpose yards, and he, you know, plowing through, and, you know, he had Jan Stenerud missing that 30-plus uh, yard field goal to uh, give the uh, Chiefs the victory, and instead, Garrow Upremian, uh kicks the field goal uh, for the Miami Dolphins and uh, eliminates the Kansas City Chiefs. So there were so many great games. Not that there weren't great games in the NFL, but this AFL uh, had every reason not to succeed. You know, and things happened. I think it was mainly Lamar Hunt's 
great business acumen as an oil man in Dallas, was able to uh, run it like a business. You know, I spoke to um, Jerry Falwell. Uh, Jerry Falwell now is the uh, out president of uh, Liberty University, but Jerry Falwell, Liberty University, one of the most successful universities in the country down in Lynchburg, Virginia, and he said the, the reason that we are is that we run it like a business. We don't run it like a college. We run it like a business. And when you go there, the campus is beautiful. There's a law school. There's an osteopathic school. There's a music school. They have everything. Business school. And everything is top in line. Building is beautiful. Inside, beautiful. Uh, it's a privilege to go there. And uh, when they took over, when he took over, the school had no endowment. Now they have billions of dollars of endowment. Every time you see it, they're building something else. And that was way that was the way the american football league was it was a shrine to business uh you run it like a business you have businessmen that know how to make things happen and uh you will succeed and uh the merger of course in 1970 it was contemplated well before that around 66 with tech stram and uh and uh lamar hunt and some others uh the main reason was because uh, they knew that they could make more money in the AFL. I think the AFL certainly would have been as successful as the NFL and probably more successful even if it didn't merge. Uh, and we'll never really know all the details, but the Super Bowl came from that where the AFL would play the NFL, and uh, and that is the, the story. But what a, what a legacy that this um, league had. You know, just a beautiful legacy, uh, coaches who became Hall of Famers who would have never had the opportunity to coach anywhere else. And their names are indelibly etched upon the great, colorful pages of sports history. Well, that'll about do it for our show today. Thanks so much for joining us on this segment of Sports Beat Radio Talk and Sports, where we were talking about the great coaches of the American Football League. What a league it was. Proud to uh, have been able to be part of it growing up in the 60s. Sportsbeat's been a presentation of Mountain Meadow Productions at Sportsbeat Radio. And until next time, all of you have a great day and great sports. Thanks for watching, everybody. We'll see you soon.